Hi, and welcome to Antiviral, the COVID-19 curriculum for health profession students. Here, we turn the curriculum content into easily digestible audio. As a reminder, the entire curriculum is available online at curriculum.covidstudentresponse.org. episode on investigational therapeutics and vaccine development is a part of module one from bench to bedside the goal of this episode is to explore some of the therapies currently in trials to treat COVID-19 and to better understand how a vaccine will be developed this episode will focus on the first portion therapeutics First, what treatments are available or under investigation? Let's begin with hydroxychloroquine. So what is it and how does it work? Hydroxychloroquine is currently used as an anti-malarial to treat autoimmune diseases such as lupus and rheumatoid arthritis due to its immunomodulatory effects. While the mechanism of action is not fully understood, the leading hypothesis include the inhibition of viral fusion to the endosomal cell membrane through pH modulation and limiting the glycosylation of cellular receptors on the viral membrane. Does it actually work or not? Well, in short, we still really don't know. Researchers initially turned to hydroxychloroquine because since the 1960s, the antiviral activity of chloroquine has been noted in vitro. Cell culture inhibition of viral replication was noted for SARS-CoV-1 and MERS-CoV, and more recently was seen in SARS-CoV-2. But whether these effects would be seen when given to a human being with active COVID-19 instead of directly onto a dish with the virus was still unknown. Currently, the data supporting the use of hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine for the treatment of patients with COVID-19 are mixed with insufficient results to define a clear benefit and continued concerns over drug toxicity. The earliest results of studies in humans from China included a case series report across 10 hospitals reporting a shortening of disease course with chloroquine. However, subsequent studies have not observed a similar benefit of hydroxychloroquine. The first reported randomized trial of 62 mild COVID-19 cases without hypoxia in Wuhan concluded that addition of hydroxychloroquine to standard of care led to a one-day faster time to improvement of symptoms such as fever and cough and chest imaging findings, and possibly lower likelihood of disease progression. However, adverse events were not recorded, which was a serious concern. Considering the benefit of the drug was still unclear, it's important to know the risks of using the drug before determining if the risk-benefit ratio is worth it. Later, in mid-April, an open-label, multi-centered Chinese randomized control trial of 150 hospitalized COVID-19 patients found no significant difference in the likelihood of viral RNA clearance and no significant difference in symptom resolution over 28 days for hydroxychloroquine compared to standard of care. The researchers did find hydroxychloroquine-treated patients had a significantly lower CRP and an insignificant trend towards faster resolution of lymphopenia, 
though these surrogate lab findings didn't translate to clinically meaningful results, which is what we care about as physicians. Furthermore, hydroxychloroquine treated patients also had a higher adverse event rate of 30% compared to 8% in the standard of care arm. In a retrospective cohort study of 1,438 patients hospitalized in New York State, one of the first major U.S. studies, treatment of hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, or both were not associated with lower mortality. Despite the confusion and unclear benefit of hydroxychloroquine, on March 29th, the FDA issued an Emergency Use Authorization, or EUA, for chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine allowing physicians to prescribe these drugs for hospitalized patients when deemed appropriate and even outside of a clinical trial. As a result, hydroxychloroquine alone or in combination with azithromycin has been widely used in the U.S. However, when adverse events finally began being reported widely in the studies, caution regarding drug toxicity, particularly QT prolongation and cardiomyopathy, was advised by the American College of Cardiology. In fact, one trial comparing two doses of chloroquine was stopped early due to a higher trend towards mortality in the high-dose group and greater QT prolongation. In addition, in a retrospective analysis of 368 United States Veterans Administration patients on hydroxychloroquine alone or in combination with azithromycin, both exposures were not associated with a reduced risk of ventilation requirements, and those treated with hydroxychloroquine alone had an overall increase in mortality. Aware of these evolving data, on April 24th, the FDA issued a drug safety communication highlighting the risk of QT prolongation, particularly in patients with renal disease and in combination with other medications that prolong the QT interval, including azithromycin. While still available under that EUA, the FDA recommends enrollment in a clinical trial for consideration of use. So after all those studies, what's next? So the answer is really ongoing clinical trials. Despite evidence for a weak benefit in patients and a high likelihood of adverse events, many clinical trials are still underway. Others include post-exposure prophylaxis trials in exposed patients and in healthcare workers. In March 2020, the WHO launched an open-label, multi-center, randomized adaptive solidarity trial, which includes hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine as a treatment arm. In CIRM, the French Biomedical Research Agency is coordinating a European add-on study of the same treatments called Discovery. These larger RCT trials will hopefully provide data that will allow the medical community to better understand the risk-benefit ratio of treating COVID-19 patients. Based on what we've seen so far, there is not much evidence to suggest that hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine will be the kind of drug that many were hoping for. Next, let's turn it over to remdesivir. First, what is it and how does it work? Remdesivir is a novel antiviral drug developed initially for Ebola virus disease and Marburg virus infections. While it was shown to be safe in trials, it was not fully pursued for business reasons due to the recognition that it would likely show clinical inferiority compared to other drugs that were available for those diseases. Remdesivir is a nucleotide analog 
that serves as a decoy to be incorporated into replicating viruses and cause premature termination of the viral strand made by the viral RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. So does it actually work? Again, we still don't know, but results to date are more encouraging than those for hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine. Like with hydroxychloroquine, researchers believed remdesivir was worth investigating because both MERS-CoV and SARS-CoV-1 are inhibited by remdesivir in multiple in vitro and animal model systems. The same findings were quickly seen for SARS-CoV-2. Interest in remdesivir gained traction after its compassionate use helped treat one of the first patients in the United States that had critical illness. In a multi-center case series, the compassionate use of remdesivir for up to 10 days in 53 patients with severe COVID-19 and hypoxia, about 68% had clinical improvement, which was discharge or decreased requirement for oxygen support, and 13% died. Out of the 30 intubated patients, 57%, so that was 17 patients, were extubated. Elevated liver enzymes were the most frequently reported adverse event at 23%. Of note, there are likely many biases introduced as part of this compassionate use design, as the patients who received a drug were not randomized, and it was at the discretion of physicians to decide who they should try the drug on. Later, initial results from a comparison of a 5- to a 10-day regimen in patients with severe disease suggested no difference in outcomes, such as clinical recovery, discharge, or death, between the lengths of the regimens. Along with the serious biases noted above, conclusions about treatment benefits were limited in such a design because there was no control group. Still, these results were enough to continue hype and development for the drug. Eventually, we got randomized control trial data. 10 hospitals in Hubei, China, conducted the first multi-center randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study of remdesivir. While mortality outcomes were similar between remdesivir and placebo arms, time to symptom resolution was shorter in the remdesivir-treated group. The trial was underpowered. It only enrolled 52% of its target sample due to the declining incidence of COVID-19 in that area. On April 29th, initial findings from the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Disease, or NIAID, Adaptive COVID-19 Treatment Trial, which is a phase three double-blind placebo-controlled randomized control trial, were released. In more than 1,000 patients with moderate to severe disease at 68 sites, the time to recovery was 11 days in the remdesivir arm versus 15 days in the placebo arm. There was no significant difference in mortality observed, though there was a trend towards mortality benefit, mortality rates of 8% in the remdesivir arm and 11.6% in the placebo arm, with a p-value of 0.059. As more data were released, we found that patients who received remdesivir for five days were 65% more likely to show improvement on a seven-point scale, with seven being not hospitalized at the end of 11 days. Those who received remdesivir for 10 days were 31% more likely to have improved on the seven-point scale, but that difference was not statistically significant, meaning that it might have occurred by chance. It's important to note that the results from this trial have been selectively released by the company developing it and that the results have not been published in a peer-reviewed setting. 
So in response to the initial results of an NIAID adaptive trial, on May 1st, the FDA issued an EUA authorizing the use of remdesivir in severe disease. So um, where the oxygenation was less than 94% on room air, requiring supplemental oxygen, mechanical ventilation, or ECMO. Because the optimal dosing and duration of treatment is unknown, preliminarily, a 10-day course is suggested for patients requiring mechanical ventilation and slash or ECMO. The U.S. government will coordinate the distribution and allocation of a current supply of remdesivir based on need. So what's next? Again, more clinical trials. There's multiple randomized trials of remdesivir currently ongoing globally. Formal results from the NIAID trial and the Gilead-sponsored open-label trial that evaluated different durations of remdesivir are expected soon. In the United States, multi-center randomized trials are recruiting moderate and severe cases. The solidarity and discovery trials include a remdesivir treatment arm as well. For the next treatment type, we'll turn to passive antibody transfer. Starting off, what is it and how does it work? It's also called convalescent plasma, and it's essentially donated plasma from a patient who already has the antibodies against SARS-CoV-2 due to a previous infection. Instead of actively immunizing a patient using a vaccine, which we don't currently have, we can repeatedly transfuse patients with plasma from those who have recovered in those who are high risk, also called prophylaxis, or who currently have severe symptoms of COVID-19. This is a method that's been used for other viral illnesses in the past, including polio, measles, and influenza, but tends to work better for prevention as opposed to treatment. The only problem is that these antibodies only last for a short period of time and will need to be repeatedly replaced. The antibodies work by preventing viral entry into cells and by promoting phagocytosis by the body's immune cells. So does it actually work? The evidence so far is weak, largely because the only evidence we have are from case series without control arms. However, the idea is promising, and much more data should be coming out soon in the coming months. During the epidemics of SARS and MERS, high mortality and the lack of effective treatment options led to the use of convalescent serum. A recent study reported that serum collected from confirmed positive SARS-CoV-2 patients have the ability to neutralize SARS-CoV-2 in an in vitro plaque assay. In March 2020, the FDA temporarily authorized the use of convalescent plasma through the Emergency Investigational New Drug Applications Exemption. This allows for a case-by-case request to the FDA for treatment of life-threatening cases while clinical trials for convalescent plasma begin the traditional IND pathway, or the Investigational New Drug pathway. No formal clinical trial data exists yet for COVID-19, but a preprint pilot study in 10 severely ill patients performed in China revealed that transfusion was well tolerated and that in 7 out of 10 patients, viral load was undetectable one week after treatment. Another case series study in China demonstrated improvement in five patients with severe COVID-19 after treatment with convalescent plasma. Importantly, this study has several limitations. 
There was no control arm, and patients also received other antiviral treatments. The American Red Cross is helping to find appropriate donors and distribute convalescent plasma across the U.S. The next category of drugs to discuss are those that focus on cytokine storms and anti-inflammatory drugs. These drugs are worth noting because they currently exist to treat other diseases and can thus quickly be put into clinical trials. These drugs block IL-6 or IL-1, which are known to be mediators of cytokine storms and an overloaded immune response, which we know leads to much of the damage in the lungs and the rest of the body when a patient has a severe case of COVID-19. The theory is that by suppressing this overactivation of the immune system, we can help improve patient outcomes without actually doing anything about the virus itself. There are a number of promising drugs, many of which have shown positive results in early stage studies. However, large randomized control trials are still ongoing, and until they're completed, we'll not know if including these drugs in our arsenal will meaningfully help patients with severe cases of COVID-19. We'll finish our section on treatments with the category of neutralizing antibodies. This is a category of treatment worth mentioning, but not going into that much detail, mostly because there isn't that much to say. Antibody-based treatments usually target a specific piece of the virus to make it ineffective. There are no current treatments, largely because labs and companies need to design the antibodies to hone in on a specific part of SARS-CoV-2. Most efforts will likely go after the spike protein because it's easily accessible on the surface of a virus and plays an important role in entry into the host cells, as noted in the episode on basic virology and immunology. This is likely one of the most promising categories of treatments, but it will take time before they are available for use in humans. Of note, there are many other novel drugs under investigation that we didn't feel were necessary to discuss at this time. We'll be sure to include links in the show notes to sources where you can learn more about these drugs. So in summary, we talked about the risks and benefits of some drugs that seem less promising, such as hydroxychloroquine, and other drugs that appear more promising for treatment of severely ill COVID-19 patients, such as remdesivir, convalescent plasma, and anti-inflammatory drugs. However, more clinical trial evidence is needed for all of these potential treatment options. Thanks for listening and tune into the second part of this episode on vaccines. See you there.